Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Third Place Podcast. I'm excited to have you guys join us today. This is the first of two interviews that we have that coincide with our episode, Not If But When, How to Have Difficult Conversations, uh, because uh, it's not if they happen, but it is truly when they happen, and how do we go a little bit deeper in a respectful way with people that we maybe disagree with or have conflict with. This is such a big topic and really so much of the heart of the Third Place Podcast. How do we have better dialogue? How do we empower each other to go deeper with with people and in our relationships and, and really have those difficult conversations? So for this specific episode, we wanted to have two interviews that coincide. Uh, so this is the first of two. Today, we are truly honored to interview two of the most inspiring women, Sarah and Masasha, who co-host a podcast called Dear White Women. You'll hear just the brilliance in our conversation. We had so much fun interviewing them, and we learned so much, and I'm sure that you're going to learn uh, just so much as well. So without further ado, Sarah and Masasha. Well, uh, welcome to the Third Place Podcast. David and I could not be more excited because we have two guests that we have found from previous experience, but also um, a community that is near and dear to my heart, which is the Hey Mama community. And I want to introduce me, Sasha and Sarah of the Dear White Women podcast. And we are going to dive into the conversation that is probably one of the most important to us in this time and something that they, they touch on and probably every episode that you ever do, I would imagine. So welcome, you two. Thanks so much for Thank having you. us. Um, I would love to start with, like, can you can you both just give us, you know, our listeners a little bit of a background of your podcast and, and what you two do? Sure. I mean, I think our podcast is basically aiming to help people ease into uncomfortable conversations about race and racism and how to be more anti-racist. Um, me, Sasha can touch on the personal side of why this is important to us, but both of us are half white, half Japanese daughter of at least one Japanese immigrant, uh, parent. And we met like 20 something years ago. We've only lived in the same city during college. And then for one year (laughs) after that, but we have remained the closest of friends through the decades and through out the world really. So I, um, am really psyched that we've been able to create something that is really important to us personally. And I think really makes a big difference for the lives of others and also for, you know, hopefully building a better future for our kiddos. Right. And I think, um, you know, Sarah said the, you gave the background of the podcast and, and really came from a very personal place because, um, if you're familiar with the podcast, you know that not only are we biracial, but we also have multiracial children and, in getting married and having kids, our conversations changed because, you know, we've known each other for 20 something years. So our college conversations morphed into working conversations, morphed into, you know, life and parenting conversations. And we realized that our fears for our children, while we all have fears and hopes and dreams for kids, um, they're not the same. And that in America largely depends on, in some ways, what race is your child or how is your child seen? And so, you know, my largest fears or one, well, okay, before 2020, one of my largest fear was um, that my husband who's black or my children who are half black, quarter Japanese, quarter white would walk out of our house and not come back simply Mm. because of the color of their skin. And, you know, as a parent, you want to do everything you can to protect your children. And this is something I could not protect them from. And I could not explain to them that kids who did not look like them would be given the benefit of the doubt in scenarios. And they will never be given that benefit of the doubt. And that is heartbreaking as a parent. Um, and But, you know, as, as Sarah and I started having these conversations, we realized that these weren't conversations that everyone was having. So we wanted to take those conversations. We wanted to move them to a public space and get really uncomfortable because these are uncomfortable things and uncomfortable issues. And so if we can model that for other people, we feel like maybe we can get those conversations started in homes just like ours. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And that's what, that's what really our goal is with the, this 
podcast for us is we need to figure out how to have better conversations. We talk about the third place being this, it's not this black perspective or this white perspective, but this messy gray middle and they're going to be uncomfortable. And I'm, I mean, I grew up thinking that politics and religion were topics that you didn't want to talk about, that they were inappropriate. I'm starting to really think that those are where the practice hard conversations are because the harder ones like racism, like gender gap are the ones that we want to embrace and we just don't know how to do it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because in my, in raising, I was in a, a very bizarre family where there were seven of us on the youngest of five. And we had family meetings where we talked about conflict every single week. So I'm like on the very polar opposite. I joked on one of our last episodes with David, I was like, it sounds a little culty. It was a little culty feeling. <laughs> um, but for the most part, like what what's cool about the process of the third place and what I think that, you know, your podcast and the intention behind our podcast is that um, it's providing me more and more tact around it. Yeah, maybe I'm desensitized to these conversations, but to have the tact and to have the compassion come through when there's so much disparity right now is really one of the, one of my greatest desires to come out of um, this podcast. So I I love that because, you know, if you grew up having difficult conversations and conflict resolution conversations with your family, you understood that that starts from a place of love. Like you, mm-hmm. even if you didn't like your siblings at that moment, you sure do love them at the bottom of the, you know, at the end of the day. And yeah. so it's like you grew up in this environment where you realize that just because you have different viewpoints or you, something went wrong, you still see them as human. And I think that is the most difficult thing. The thing that whether, you know, we can blame it on tech, we can blame it on our phones, we can blame it on, we can blame it on any other thing, but we all have a choice to see the humanity in Mm -hmm. somebody else when we're having these conversations. And right now, largely the media is dehumanizing us. We are not reaching for that as the beginning of this. And I think, you know, that is one of the most important things when you're heading into a difficult conversation is like, remember the other person is still a person. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, perfect, perfect segue into the conversation that we want to have with you guys. So, you know, the title of this is not if, but when and how to like be prepared for difficult conversations, difficult situations, challenging exchanges. And, you know, we're seeing out there in media, there's tons of things being blown up. David and I's background is in coffee and tea in the natural foods industry. So we've seen a ton of things happening in the coffee shop where, you know, little exchanges blow up into something that becomes viral. And the media leans into the disparity becoming this very hateful thing. And, you know, I am wondering, you know, why a topic like this, when there's these minor exchanges happening that can blow up so easily, is important to the two of you and, and how it relates to the work that the two of you do. I think that there is like, when we talk about race and racism, um, you know, it's so charged. And I think that people automatically get defensive first. And so I I think because it's seen not in a historical context, not in a moving forward context, but in a a direct attack on who you are, um, and maybe things you never thought about. And not to say that, you know, everyone is raised in a system. And in the United States, we have a clear system of how we were raised. And there is a dominant narrative. And that is, you know, a white male cisgender narrative. And that flows through all of what we learn. So sometimes when we have these conversations, it challenges the assumptions and the core of what, you know, you believe. And, you know, if you're like David, and it was partially at times in my family, too, we didn't talk about politics or religion in the same way. And so those were taboo subjects. And now you're suddenly being asked to think on the spot about something maybe you've never thought about. And our immediate human reaction is to get defensive, shut down. Um, And it's hard to fight through those and to listen and to think like, where, where can I see this person? Where's that humanity that we were just talking about? How can I relate? And I think that when that defensiveness kicks in, you're automatically, it automatically escalates, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're shut down, you're not listening. Um, And I know I do this too. And I'm an attorney. So I see it from my clients, right? Um, You shut down, you're trying to protect yourself. But in protecting yourself, you're not hearing the other person. So I think that's how it can so quickly escalate. 
So it's like, it's the perceived threat, right? It's like, I'm being threatened. What I know, what my experience of life, what my truths are, are completely being threatened. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, being an attorney, do you have any, you know, perfect stories or a story that comes to mind when thinking about this topic? Uh, I mean, so I'm a litigator. Um, so people are in conflict when they come and talk to you. And so as every a, single one. Right. So literally everything. <laughs> yes. And I personally don't like conflict. Um, mm. And so the meshing the two is always interesting. But I think clients um, often don't understand what's being asked of them. And I think that's what... Um, what happens in our those conversations to the coffee shop conversations, you don't understand really what the other person is trying to ask or say. Um, and I think it's really easy to assume, right, you assume a lot of things, um, and clients will get a letter from, you know, the the company that there is sort of challenging something that they're doing, and they immediately go to like DEFCON 9. And they're like, I can't believe they're challenging the core of who I am. Um, mm. and, and part of my role is to sort of talk them down from that and say like, no, well, if you read this, if you really read the words that they're saying, or you're listening to the voicemail that they left, they're not saying this, they're like five steps below, they want to work it out. And I think that's, um, common even in our personal conversations you know what's the what's the end goal and i don't think the end goal is often to blow each other up right but because that doesn't work out for either party but i think the end goal is to reach that common mutual understanding where we can both benefit um even though that sounds sort of counter to litigation i think that's generally the goal when people enter into something like that yeah it sounds to me like you're you're doing something that's so emotional, you know, the times right now are so heightened emotions, litigation, you know, what your work is, is always textured with heightened emotions. And we talked about like, um, putting your emotions on trial to go to the like logical or like fact-based place. And it sounds like you're like a medium for, for helping people do that. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting, um, the, you know, putting your emotions on trial and uh, because I also think about it as especially in um, personal conversations, right? You're not the prosecutor, right? Like you're not the one who's like going to prove this case necessarily like you're that's not your role. Um, and that's not my role as an advocate for someone either, right? I'm not necessarily going to prove a case just by listing facts and getting the other person all riled up. Like what I really need to do is to find how to connect with them. Um, and part of that is from listening. Part of that is letting my own defenses like subside and breathing um, is key to that. And just taking a moment, taking it in, like listening to what they're saying and what they're not saying maybe as well. Mm. I think for me, like when I think about trying to, uh, I, I mean, I have to assume that this is learned, but I try to like always lead the conversation with that listening perspective. Like I understand that my perspectives are limited from a pretty narrow happens to be white male middle-class lens. Um, but because no matter what, all of our lenses are so narrow, I want to have the conversations with the other so I can learn the perspective. Like to me, it's just foundational to be more complete human, to better understand this whole experience for everyone. So how, like, what's a tool how do we get there faster or how do you how would you encourage someone to lean into that a little bit more i mean what i heard you just say was realize that you know you're not your perspective isn't the only one and i think we have to encourage people to remember that as a step one because you know in our country going back to that narrative we've really focused so much on meritocracy and i did it by myself and i do i am so strong and you know you think about the mother like as moms you're like I'm not going to rely on anyone. I am so strong. I can do it all. Like that is our downfall. And, and, and I think at the, the truth is, you know, then there've been books and studies. None of us do any of this alone. So we need to start by first appreciating and taking stock and encouraging our, you know, the people we're in conversation with to even appreciate that, like the firefighters, the policemen, whatever you think about police right now, the people who pave the road, the collect your garbage, like there are so many things that are being done in this world for the community and we are part of it. And so if we start there and then appreciate that maybe if there is all this community, then maybe my voice isn't the only truth 
and that there are many, many different truths out there. And then we can start being curious. I think that shifts the conversation in, in a different direction than the one where you're sort of selfishly going like, I am right and this is it and I am alone and, and you know, it's more angry. Yeah, which to me, I think really just like what you guys focus in on is it starts at home. I mean, I'm as you were talking, I was thinking about conversations that I have with my kid that I educate him on on really what's behind the scenes for something that he perceives or observes so that there is that uh, more of a it's not just a, it's a not a global perspective, even though I truly believe in that, but it's like more of um, just community and uh, the backing. I even was thinking about like social media. I think a lot of our perception of these, these very um, dominant figures or powerful figures, there's like, they just post and that's just, it just happens. It's what they're doing by themselves. And that's totally not the case. One of the most, amazing influencers I've, I've spoken to, like they will get honest around. It's a team. Like I, I even love, it's as simple as that, but there's a team behind every force that's happening. And when we're so driven by media and social media right now, it's so easy to forget that because what's actually what you're perceiving and seeing on your feed or whatever it may be for a very short amount of time looks like just an individual looks like a very powerful individual that you could not even grace or touch with you know, like, how could I even be something like that? So I'm, do you guys have conversations with your children around, you know, what's an example of a conversation you've had with your children to give them that community perspective and connection? Like what doesn't like have that? Our dinner table yeah. conversations. It's been, it's been interesting because my kids present as white and yet because like it's, we have so many conversations about other like perspectives because it's so important, especially for kids who present as white to understand that theirs is not the only narrative. And, you know, it'll be stuff like so-and-so is really smelly at school, you know, and he wears the same clothes all the time. And then it's like, let's slow the conversation right down and say, what else do you think might be going on in their home? Like, what do you have that mm. they might not have access to? Like what are different explanations and there could be multiple different explanations for this you know but just under like challenging them and then they come up with the answers being like oh well maybe maybe they don't have uh the a parent to go buy them deodorant maybe they haven't been able to shower for a few days maybe they don't actually have any other clothes or maybe they just want to be like this you know like there's so many explanations and i i find that um i'm trying very hard to train the kids to to think about alternative narratives so they can develop a sense of compassion and also ultimately be nicer to themselves as opposed to like they mess up on something and they take it internally and go like, I'm a failure. They might say, well, you know, this and this and this had happened and I was having a hard day. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I loved how you talked about, you know, it, it loving yourself. Like we talked about uh, loving others. Like, why can't we just get back there at the very beginning of this? But it seems like so much of loving yourself is such a part of that. And, and even the individualism that you touched on, it's like we've learned that to love ourselves, we have to be individual or that success looks like being completely on our own. Um, when in fact, the reality, that's just not possible. That's not this experience. But we've almost equated loving ourselves with the more independent we can be, the more we can love ourselves. And again, that's all like not true. Mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting that the shared shared connection and um comes from like, okay, you know, even in your two relationship, it's like, here are the things that we share. And that's a part of the foundation of our friendship. Um, but then there's clearly so much about the strength of your friendship, you know, it, that is probably about having had disparity or in perspective and having had conversation about that, that would take it that, yes, maybe your friendship was founded in both being half Japanese and a mom and a mother, you know, so on and so on. But I would imagine that it's stronger through disparity. You know, it's funny because I think um, I think it's less disparity and more challenge in some ways. Mm. Like I think, you know, Sarah pushes me and challenges me in she's laughing now, which is <laughs> no, but we are so we are very different in some ways. Like, um, you know, I used to say I was the emotionless robot on our podcast and she's like the touchy feely 
you know, being a litigator versus, you know, a life coach, we, we come at things from very different perspectives. Um, and I totally overanalyze things, um, among other things and, and come at it, you know, in one particular way. And then Sarah will come in and, and ask a question or say something. And I think that's when, you know, I'm challenged to think a little bit bigger and and differently than how I would otherwise think about certain topics. And especially the topics that we cover on the podcast. I think that's why we can have these conversations because we come at it too from different angles. So when we're modeling these conversations, we're modeling it for a whole host of people who may, you know, identify more with Sarah or identify more with me um, or maybe fall in the middle and they can see themselves or parts of themselves in, in how we talk. So I think that's one of the real strengths of our friendship evolving over the years is that challenge component. Do you think that you are more productive in these conversations where you are different because of the foundation of your relationship? I think that, you know, these are really tough topics. And I, I think that to go as deep at times as we do, you you have to have a, a strong foundation because there's a level of respect, um, you know, and that love that we were talking about at the start. Like, you know, even if we were to disagree about something, I still love her. So um, we can go back to that. But I think if, if you're trying to have a very deep conversation without that foundation, then it's very easy to have those fractures and those misunderstandings. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, someone steps away just feeling wronged or hurt and you can't get back to that level that deep layer of love and respect because it didn't it wasn't there to start a phrase that i hear often especially when you get into conflict and you mentioned how you don't like conflict is let's agree to disagree and for me every time i hear that i'm like ah just roll my eyes in the back of your head but what you just said was hey we have love and there are times that we agree to disagree how does that phrase make you feel like what does agreeing to disagree really look like in a really healthy way? It's funny because I agree with you. Like when I hear let's agree to disagree, I feel like it's very dismissive. It, it's the end of this conversation. You're like, I'm done with you. And like, I don't care. You know, mm -hmm. like I'm not going to change my mind. You know, yet it's important to know like, like Misasha and I, I don't, I think, you know, I buy by this whole thing about like, there was this couple, this fictional couple, and they had a home and the husband wanted the pool and the wife didn't want the pool in the house that they were going to build. And what they did, they were never going to, you can't agree to disagree because then like, what do you do? But they defaulted to the person who cared more about their decision. You know, like, like, the wife was truly terrified. You address the concerns like about the kids drowning, about the money. When you address all the foundational concerns about it, then whoever cares more can be, have their needs met. And the other person appreciates that and is willing to compromise because they care, they understand how much that other person cares. And, you know, so mm. I feel like it, it, you have to understand the other person's perspective and you're not going to then disagree. I think, an example recently, Misasha and I were, were doing an interview and uh, it was like of a person whose experiences could have been a trigger had we pushed and pushed a little bit more. But after we finished the interview, I was like, man, we should have done this and this and this. And I wish we had. And I was beating myself up. But Misasha was like, that would not have served the purpose of this interview to bring this perspective while then you would have damaged or potentially triggered the individual we were speaking to. So why, what purpose mm. would that have served? And I mean, I immediately stopped beating myself up because that made sense to me. You know, when, when you really get mm. to the foundation of it, I don't think you can agree to disagree unless it gets to the line for me, at least of you are disrespecting my humanity. If, if that, mm. that is a, for me, a hard line. And I think one of the frustrating things I've felt lately is that there's a lot of shifting lines and there's people are not, um, at least in the media, holding some of these lines that I think are foundational to humanity. And that's what is triggering me recently with some of these, these conversations, because you can't, to me, you can't move forward then. I, I'm so curious. Cause like I've, you know, I'm, I'm an ad admitted, uh, diagnosed people pleaser. So I feel like in a conversation, if I was having that pool conversation with my husband, I would maybe, you know, having the conversation to be like, who cares more might have been challenging. It's maybe not as much in today, but three years ago, no, no question. 
And I'm wondering like how maybe with you as a life coach, would you help someone prepare for conversations like this? Or what would you ask them to be able to identify like as a people pleaser, I think sometimes you don't even know what you care about, let alone how much you care about something. So how, how would you guide someone to get to a place of understanding that so that they can come with their full human self and be equipped to be in these Yeah, I mean, that's like a whole life coaching, like whole like set of sessions. <laughs> but I think there's some fundamental things. Where... <laughs> yeah. And people can find you where. <laughs> I will call you after this. No, no, I think there's some things that we need to learn about ourselves that is not taught in school in order to really like yeah. embrace our humanity and it's stuff. And some, some of these things change over our lives, right? Like I am a different person than I was before I became a mother because my values shifted. You know, I found strengths in me that I didn't know were strengths, but I think you start with some of these, like an easy fix is like, or a start is like, do some of these character strength assessments so that you know what your strengths are. Someone else has told you that. So you're not guessing at it. There's like the via strength survey, like on the character strength, then you can do mm -hmm. your values. Like if you're in a partnership, find out what your values are and your partner's values are and put them on a wall. Like how do you make your decisions mm. as a family? Is it a sense of love? Is it a sense of whatever, you know? Um, and then once you get to know that, then all of a sudden, I would also say get in tune with your body. Like it, it requires slowing down, but I think our conscious minds can process some information, right? When we're able to communicate what is on our mind, but our bodies and our intuition, after you practice it more and more and more, is really, really smart and can take in so many more bits of information per second. And so if you know where your anxiety mm. lives, for example, in your body, and you feel that twinge of your stomach, you may not know the answer to the problem yet, but you know that you need to s set aside some time and listen to that and mull it over. And then I do like the journaling. I mean, I've got like the, I modified the artist's way oh, and I cool. just took the idea of handwriting. They have this thing called morning pages to like get yourself out of your own way. Yeah. I, with kids did not have the, and not being a morning person, I was like, I'm not getting up every morning no to way. handwrite three pages. But <laughs> the moment I have my brain spiraling or something feels unsettled, I grab the same notebook and I sit down and I write it, handwriting three pages, whatever, even if it's, I don't know what I'm writing. Like I just, that's my discipline because that is what gets me out of the way to understand what is bo like bothering me so that I can do something about it. It's so interesting how doing a, an act of writing, though, because that's like, I would think of that as like a logical practice. Actually, I'm hearing that it takes you, though, into your body. It slows your nervous system down and helps you get to a place where you can hear what's happening to your body. Yeah, I mean, so, there's transfer. a study that showed that when you're analyzing a situation that you're not sure about, like that is causing negativity. I mean, any of us have basically three main forms of processing information. You've got talking about it. You've got thinking about it. And you've got writing about it. And when you mm. are processing something that feels negative, the worst thing you can do is just sit in your brain and think about it. You have to talk to someone or you have to write mm. in order to be able to analyze things. Because when you are caught in your brain, you tend to spiral downwards versus getting that out and sort of having an opportunity to reflect back on it. And the opposite is true for good things. Like you don't want to analyze why you had such an incredible time, you know, at this particular family dinner, because then it takes the joy out of it. You want to celebrate it, acknowledge it, be grateful, but you don't want to be like, I wonder what about that dinner was so amazing with my family. Like, you know, you just want to appreciate it. <laughs> so those are the the tools that I know from like positive psych and, and life coaching world that when you're having a difficult conversation, whether it's about race or, or any of these other topics that like the pool Give yourself that space, that permission to process it however you need to. If you need to call your version of your Misasha and be like, oh my God, or texting. I mean, the amount of texts that she, the number of times I have had like a, a soliloquy on text and I'm like, thanks for listening. And she's like, I didn't respond to anything. I was like, I figured it out. You know, you just need to get it out sometimes <laughs> and to, to process it. And that's amazing. Those three things. It's like the brain is inside your body, obviously. And so getting it out in a uh, talking way is, is an ex almost like an extroverted way of processing the information. And then writing it is still getting it out of your body, but maybe in an introverted way, but still out of your body, like getting it out. It's not stuck in your head. 
Oh, that's super fascinating. I, I wonder, though, too, I was thinking of you, David. I was thinking of men in that, where I was like, man, I feel like immediately, because processing out loud is, I would argue, probably a little bit less in their repertoire, or like that's not a tool that in, that has been used or taught to men as much in, in growing up. And being a mother of a three-year-old, that's been really important to me to instill is that ability to process and talk out loud so that he can, I mean, if, if you're giving him a third tool to be able to be, have an emotional intelligence and a self-awareness, I, I hope that for men, and I know that you're very, very well-versed in this, David, but I would consider you, you know, more of a, a feminine energy in the way that you can tap into that processing. And I just, I just wonder about that. I just thought, man, I wish that we could equip. That's amazing that you that. just intuitively like processed that because that is part of the reason why when they think about marriages, why men benefit so much more from marriages because they now have a more built in person that they can talk to versus women who are constantly, I mean, at least Right. My girlfriend. I mean, we are constantly talking as women. You're we're connection finders, right? So Well And uh -huh. and that's exactly what I was gonna say. I'm like like throughout my whole life, I've always had strong women, non romantic relationships, like every stage. And I feel like that's where I did learn those traits. I was a man's man too. I Eagle Scout, Boy Scouts, did all that kind of stuff. But I felt like I always had this balance. I think that that's why I'm so passionate in other areas of work around women empowerment, like I want to strive for this equality, even in my marriage, because it's better for men too <laughs> when we do it well. Like, come on, guys, let's get going. It's it's really good to process out loud and and embrace that feminine characteristic. It's it's really a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super cool. And I'm wondering, so do you have Misasha and Sarah? What are your children and their ages and so I have two girls, and they are upper elementary and middle school sort okay. of grades. Oh, we're all online. This has been all they're up there. They're in the house right now. So if you hear screaming <laughs> because someone touched somebody else's thing, I'm sorry, but uh... <laughs> I I bow down to you. I'm like I, I I feel so lucky that I have a three year old right now that I'm like man, that's I never thought I would be like I have a toddler and I you are a rare unicorn not just because you are born and raised in Colorado, but because of that, most of the people that I've spoken to are like, oh my gosh, what do I do with a toddler at home? I feel like my kids are to be fair in an incredible sweet spot like they can get their own snacks right now yeah. if they're hungry yeah. for example and i don't have to worry about that so <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's true those are the days that i'm dreaming of yes yeah <laughs> and you misasha um so my kids are younger than sarah's i have two boys um mm -hmm. and they are just in sort of lower to mid elementary. So one was in here asking where the scissors were. And I was like, you know where six pairs of scissors are in this house. Okay. Scarily, <laughs> scarily enough you do, but you know, there's sort of a constant flow right now with distance learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so with both of you having, um, you know, Japanese heritage, I would say that a lot of a misconception is be, would maybe be that conflict would not be, uh, as welcome. Is that true? Was that your experience growing up? And do you feel like you're um, doing something, you know, radically deviant and progressive by going there? I, my mom is not a typical, like if you're going to do the typical thing, Misasha's totally laughing because she knows my mom's stories. Mom, if you're listening, I love you. But love she's yes. not a typical Japanese woman by any <laughs> stereotype you could ever imagine other than she's not that tall. Like that's the only thing that, um, you know, so I, I would say, and she, she married a white guy and left her homeland. Like there is not a... a Right? Like, she's incredible and raised Brave. three kids and all this sort of stuff. But I will say, I grew up because of that, navigating conflict my whole life. Like, there were times where I'm like, I'm I'm American, mm. you know? I, I identify very strongly as, like, half Japanese and half white. But being born and raised in the States, I wanted to go do Girl Scouts. And I wanted to play soccer like all the other kids did. But I had Japanese Saturday school on Saturdays, like my whole growing up years. And so I would have these like, but why do I have to? And my dad very much was like, no, your mother 
is Japanese, like from Japan. And there are goods and bads that come with it in your mind, but this is what it is. And you need to understand that she will not be like your other American friend moms, because this is our life. And this is how we are choosing to merge the values of the cultures together. So I, I can't say in terms of conflict resolution that, I mean, any mom with three kids probably has lost it, including my mom. And I have done it, you know, on my kids. So <laughs> I don't think the Japanese stereotype fit into our, our home, but that is how it played into it of this constant sense of compromise and understanding and realizing that there's an other perspective out there. Mm -hmm. I think that was similar for ours as well. I mean, it's my dad is Japanese. So that was a difference, um, too, you know, and, and he was the only member of his family to leave Japan and still to this day. And, you know, he there were some parts of him that are very traditional. And I remember arguing about prom because I was like, prom is a big deal. And he's like, I don't understand. I mean, <laughs> your uncle says that his daughters, my cousins have a curfew of 7 p.m. till they're married. <laughs> so this whole prom thing beyond me. And so my mom basically had to go to bat and was like, no, this is like a thing. And, you know, we'll need to let her stay out a little bit. And uh so there was sort of that balance of um, some very obvious cultural traits in our house, but also my dad, like Sarah's mom, lived in the U.S. and, you know, had, had been in the U.S. since he was a teenager um, and had gone through college here. And I think that also changed his mindset. Like we were very much growing up, there was not sort of a, in, the, in Japanese culture, there's a lot of times a gender divide, right? Between mm. what men are seen as and how women are seen. And my dad was raising a sports team, basically. So we would have the Suzuki team and we'd go out and play baseball. We'd go out and play football. There were no fouls. So, you know, I grew up with a brother and a father who was very, there were, everyone was determined that we were all going to be equal. Mm. So that was very fundamental for me as well. So I think, but at the same time, you know, we'd go to Japan and I would see, and living in Japan, I would see that that was not the case um, in the culture that was there. And my brother being the only boy out of all the girl cousins was treated very differently. So, you know, there was sort of the, like Sarah, I was balancing in my house, you know, it was always, um, there was never just one narrative. It was always a set of narratives and a set of truths. And, you know, yours is somewhere in the middle all the time. And so you're navigating that growing up. Yeah, I feel like right now we all have, so, you know, we all have our, our stories that either serve us or don't serve us. Um, and, and then layering on top of that is every other additional stressor over 2020. You know, every time people say 2020, it's like, ha, ha. Uh, you know, and it's not, I mean, David and I talk about it, like, it's not just going to change on January 1st, 2021. Like this is, this is a part of the new norm. It's is intentional, but the discomfort that we're talking about, just like in conversations, I think that it's purposeful. There's a lot that's coming out of it, that's growing out of it. Yeah, your your podcast, I think, is an example. Like, there's a lot of changes that COVID and what 2020 is bringing, like, is bringing light to a lot of things that we need to address. And I am very hopeful. 2020 has me actually very hopeful because I'm so glad that so much is being exposed right now, that there are more people that are wanting to have these conversations and like even just getting back to the whole point of this topic, it's not if they're going to happen, but truly when, how do we continue to be more prepared so we that can lower the emotional temperature of the room? So I love that you asked that because one of the things that the surveys are showing and that we're hearing is that white people are tired of this conversation. Mm. And yet, and, and I think also what 2020, aside from being an absolute dumpster fire has taught us is that we are really resilient as people because we're still making it through. We're adapting. We're making this craziness our new normal. But what I don't want to see is people say, ah, this is the new normal. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. So I agree with you. We need, especially for people who don't identify as black to really be okay leaning into the uncomfortable conversation and continuing this as a lifestyle, not just as like a thing that we talked about in 2020. Wasn't that fun? You know, like, didn't I grow so much? And here we are five years later, nothing has changed because it will take years and it will take collective effort and a lot of discomfort to, to carry on, to make, to make change. 
Well, so I I lost my father at the beginning of COVID, and I, it was it was a very bizarre grieving process. I it was the closest death I had ever had. But the reason I bring this up is because I feel like the experience that I had. I feel like we're there's grief happening in a global way that it's a death of an old way of being, and. I think what happens when someone dies is that there's this immediate sort of like coming together and there's sympathy and you pay attention to it and you feel support. But then over time, it sort of just becomes this like uh, it's not really talked about anymore. And then it's like, oh, it just happened. And then it's in the past when in actuality, it's with me forever. Right. I'm forever stamped with a new way of um, of operating as a part of it. And I feel like what's happening is that there's a similar thing where I want it to be so desperately, like, what if we could continue to ceremonialize in a way the death of the way that we used to operate and keep remembering that, yes, there's mourning to be had for many, but there's also, uh, I hope that we can keep going there and keep reminding us that, that we need to have this conversation and it's not just the funeral and be done. It's the funeral and then. And I think actually what I think about even in the Japanese culture, it comes up for me too, is that I've, I love the way that death is celebrated and ceremonialized. And I'm like, I wonder if like, you know, another cultural perspective of that could be little bits and pieces of things that we could bring into the way that we're, we're operating and grieving the old way that we were, but continually re resurfacing these, these hard conversations. I love that because, I mean, in the Japanese culture, it's true. There are so many memorials and, um, you know, and a constant reminder of, you know, the family shrine in the house. And you're always relating to your ancestors and and a whole host of levels. And, And don't forget, like, at the beginning of it, you pick up the pieces of your relative's skeleton with chopsticks. You, you face death. Bone. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have, I mean, it gives me the chills. You are yeah. really in it. So and that's kind of connected. what this year is. If yeah. you allow yourself to be really in it, to really feel George Floyd calling out for his mother, if you allow yourself to be raw and real and appreciate that our experiences are so wildly different based on the color of our skin or how we show up looking in this world, if you can really, really feel that, you'll feel that initial like slam of picking up, like facing death, like dressing your deceased loved one's body, putting them into the incinerator, picking up their ashes with chopsticks, which incidentally is why you never share food from one chopstick directly to another chopstick. Cause the only time you have two sets of chopsticks on something is a dead person's bones. Wow. Oh, wow. And you put it into the urn. Mm-hmm. So, but, but then going after that to your point, Misasha, about like the constant celebration, the reminder, the yearly, you know, and, and then the daily shrines and I mean, all of it, it is, it's really cool that you pointed that out. Well, I think also it's, it's important because, you know, um, Sarah, when you were talking about how we've seen all the studies now about sort of white fatigue again and, and saying, you know, like I'm past this, I think it's really important to remember that there are so many of us who cannot look away, you know, like my eight-year-old. You know, he's been reading this book about, or he was listening to Jackie Robinson talk talk about Jackie Robinson because they had all of the MLB, Major League Baseball was celebrating the Negro Leagues. And well, anyway, that's a whole separate story. But he was like, well, Jackie Robinson, um, you know, when, how did he die? When did he die? And I said, oh, he was in his 50s. And he's like, well, how did he die? And I'm like looking it up on my phone because I have no idea. <laughs> and he's like, did a white person kill him? And I think, mm. you know, this is what 2020 has meant in some ways for our family. And it's very hard, I think, if you're thinking about this too, like, death is is and going back to the grieving process right it's very personal for some people and other people have the ability to look away but when you support the person who is dealing with that grief and that grief that might be continuing because it's sort of on an onslaught on a daily basis you can't look away if you're actually doing that work if you're actually trying to be there and supporting that person you don't have that option anymore so i think that's really important when things get tough things get tired stopping having those conversations is looking away. And so in order to keep forward motion, we need to keep having those conversations. Even if it's, you know, small conversations, a thought, a reminder, some discussion with your child while you're watching some show, it can be very small, but it it needs to keep happening, I think. 
And that's an example of where I continue to see privilege. Like as a white person, you get to choose to say, okay, I'm kind of done with this conversation now. And you can take that conversation hat off. When you are a minority or you just look different from someone else for whatever reason, you can't ever take that off. So guess what? My whole life is fatigue. Like, and that's just what, I don't know. It's, I'm just really frustrated and sad at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'd be cool if there was a way to bring that ceremonializing into this, this 2020 for people, like a tangible way. I'm trying to think now and I, I, it probably won't come to me until later, but of something that I can physically put in my home as a reminder to like keep doing this work, keep welcoming the pain and the discomfort and to be an example of that to my kid and to my husband so that it, and, and then, you know, emote that. And I feel like when you, I so believe that you attract what you're manifesting or, or how you, how you present yourself and your energy. And so I feel like if, if all of us are focusing on that in our home and that with our relationship with ourselves too, that it's just natural going to be this contagious effect that I dream of. And so, I mean, I'll, I'll follow up with you guys and let you know. I'm curious if you do anything too to like put something tangible in your home. I'm sure uh, for me, Sasha, it's the living, breathing three people in her home that, that she has. Like, I don't think she needs a shrine. Um, and for me, it's like my friendship, but I think that goes to me, that speaks to like having a, r- a reminder of your why, like, right. That we talk about that a lot. Like, why do you care? Mm-hmm. David, why does that bother you? Like, you know, what, how do we articulate that? And so would it be a photo of the person you love so much who's being judged? Would it be, like a Black Lives Matter candle. Like, I don't know what it doesn't, but I think you you need to know why you care. And that is enough of a reminder. Mm. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, Jeez. I like, <laughs> I just have loved talking to you two so much. And I feel like we could talk all day, but you have children at home to homeschool. But I, I do have one burning question though, before we end, like what message do you have for dear white men? I mean, I think it's honestly the same in a lot of ways. Like you in particular occupy a space of privilege in this country where you can sort of move into any space and know that you're A, given the benefit of the doubt, B, you're largely going to be safe and C, that people are going to listen when you speak, you know, and, and really give weight to your words that a lot of people don't have the privilege of having. So I would say use that privilege, use it because you have so much of it. And David, like you were saying, men do better when women do better. And and that is true for all of our marginalized communities. Like we all do better. We've, you know, Sarah and I always talk about, you know, we rise by lifting others. We do. And I think we've seen parts in our nation's history where that has been true to at least some degree. And, And now is not one of them. So I think we need to go back to that. Use your voice. Um, because it's so powerful. That that brought up another question for me, of course. Um, what would you consider a successful conversation, let's say, when you guys have spoken with someone coming from a completely different perspective? And like, what would be what's your goal in a in a conversation with someone from a different perspective? I think it's hard to say there's a success in one small conversation. I think it's a series of ongoing conversations because you have to navigate the natural human instinct to get defensive. And there are going to be times where pushing and pushing just for the sake of achieving some notion of success is going to backfire if you don't let it breathe and come back to it. But I think it's this sense of persistence and humanizing and, you know, going back to that idea of what is your end goal? Well, it is, there's so much, right? There's like, income equality, there's racial, like all of these things are tied in. So if you can shift the needle a little bit in any one of these conversations, it could have a ripple effect on all of the other inequities and and negative aspects of dehumanization that are happening in this country. So do you have a different, like, I'm curious, Misasha, what mm-hmm. your answer to that would be? I would say just um, to feel heard in some ways. I think that I agree with you, Sarah, that it is a process. And I think that what we've seen sometimes is that people sort of rush into 
having a difficult conversation, it doesn't work out so well, and then you back away and you're like, well, I tried that, that's not working for me. But I think the intentionality behind it and the persistence, you know, like we don't learn how to do things once by doing them once, right? Like we learn how to do things by doing them repeatedly and getting better at it and it gets easier in some ways. So I think there's that, like you start by trying to listen and to be heard. And, you know, that does require putting some of that defensiveness on hold because, you know, I feel it every time we start having conversations too, like it, it comes and you just, that is also a practice. But to start to really hear, one of my goals. And it sounds like even just a little bit of exposure to um, opposing perspectives like that in itself can be productive. Thank you. Well, this has been amazing. And, you know, just not only thank you for the time for this podcast episode or this interview, but thank you so much for the energy that you're putting into the work. It's just a beautiful conversation. And I really am just ultra grateful. Can you uh, please share with our audience where they can find Absolutely. You? Dear White Women is anywhere you listen to podcasts. We also have all of our episodes and a bunch of resources and information up on our website at www.dearwhitewomen.com. And our social media handles on Facebook and Instagram are at Dear White Women Podcast and then on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. I'm sure you all loved that interview as much as we did. Uh, join us in the next couple of days as we look more from the clinical side of how to have difficult conversations. We'll be interviewing a friend of mine, Sonam Klein, who is a professor of cyber psychology at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Uh, just really excited just to bring in a different perspective, what goes on in our bodies and what's going on at a psychological level as we have these harder conversations or have these uh, moments of conflict. So we'll talk to you soon. Be well. Thank you.